Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, April 1st, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not a financial advisor. I can't give you personal financial advice. Please do your own due diligence and your own research. It's your money. It's your responsibility. So a little bit late. Again, with the video, but uh, still getting it out, uh, busy during the week and um, traveling. So uh, this week probably is just going to be kind of a lot of not very profound information, but just uh, things that uh, I came across during the week. You know, we're talking about oil demand and Chinese reopening. I'm seeing, you know, different opinions on this, but. You know, one of the things that I like tracking is this airline or uh, these flights. And you notice that, you know, after we re after they reopened, it kind of surged up and then it kind of leveled off. And then now it's starting to move higher. Why is that? Well, uh, we're starting to see international flights now start to get resumed back to China. Uh, so uh, they didn't just go from zero to 100 percent. But if you read the articles and stuff, um, like I'm putting here, uh, like Air China resumes services from London, Gatwick. So that's just one article. You can go on Google and search, you know, Chinese international flights restarting or what have you. Go to the news thing. And it, it's the same thing. It talks about flights resuming uh, from Rome and all these other places to China. So that should be helpful in getting um, the demand, aviation fuel demand, which we were kind of wondering about. We talked about that last week. You know, would the resumption of international flights, um, you know, give us that added push of that added, you know, several few hundred thousand, whatever barrels a day? You know, not only that, you know, we'll, we'll keep tracking this, but, uh, you know, not only with the international flights, but, you know, we have this, the strikes that are going on in France. You know, that's about 900,000 barrels a day that's uh, because of the refinery outages. So, you know, I think, again, you know, we saw the big downdraft because of the banking situation a couple few weeks ago. Uh, everything got sold. And then we've seen now, you know, oil prices rebound. So um, I'm still thinking that later in, as we move through the second quarter into the third and fourth quarter, um, we should see oil prices strengthen. That's my view, at least. So anyways, this article that uh, I found uh, says Air China will resume flights from London Gatwick to Beijing Capital International Airport on Saturday. It's today, April 1st. The route will initially operate four times weekly and from 24 April will become daily. The service will be the first China-bound flight to depart from the London hub since 2020. And according to the airport, marks a positive development for the business sector as demand for travel between the two countries increases following the removal of quarantine restrictions in China in January. So again, we're going to, you know, we're kind of in that show me stated state of things right now. We'll just track the data and see where it takes us. Um, but uh, I think, uh, as I said before, 
you know, my expectation is to see oil prices higher, move higher. I'm not saying they're going to go to 140, like some people have said, but uh, I don't see any reason why we can't get back into the 90s or possibly $100, you know, during the summer uh, demand season, but we'll see. So uh, here's a pretty good, um, interesting tweet that I found was an excerpt from a research report about tankers, oil tankers. It says, you see where it's blocked out here. It says, it seems no one is ordering new oil tankers. It says that numbers are stunning. The ratio of crude oil tanker capacity on order to crude tanker capacity and services down now to an all-time low of 2.7% of the fleet. That is an all-time low. Um, it goes on to say for very large crude carriers, those are the biggest tankers that carry 2 million barrels of crude, it's a mere 1.7% of the fleet. VLCCs are vital for transport of crude exports from the U.S. Gulf and Middle East. There will be 910 VLCCs of all ages on the water by the end of this year. The number of new VLCCs to be delivered in 2024, zero. The number to be delivered in 2025, one. And so um, it goes on to say here, the situation is almost as severe as the product tanker side. The order book to fleet ratio for product tankers is down to just 6.1%. Again, this is what we've talked about, this stealth bull market that's going on in both clean and dirty tankers. And uh, no one's really paying attention to it or talking about it. And uh, goes on here to say the claims made in the article are interesting, but there are a lot of what appear to be excuses surrounding the primary cause, which is that peak oil demand is coming likely later this decade. And so buying a 25 year lifespan capital asset is likely to lead to it being stranded in the case of oil tankers. Well, we'll see. I, I don't think that's why tankers aren't being ordered. I think that, you know, you're coming out of a, another bear market and the cash flows are building as we've shown and talked about and tanker companies. And I think, you know, most of the shipbuilding capacity is stuffed right now with LNG carriers and uh, container ships. That's part of the problem. But I, I would suggest if rates, which we showed last week, are moving higher again, um, if cash flows get to a certain, you know, are sustainable for a period of time, well, we've seen in the past that ship, ship owners or owners of shipping companies or managements they don't like to let money burn a hole in their pocket. They've been returning cash to shareholders, but I suspect they'll eventually start, you know, having to build ships. You know, the argument is that, well, oil's going away, oil demand's going down over time. If you build a tanker, then you won't be able to pay it off because there'll be going to be a surplus of tankers as oil demand goes away. You know that I don't think that way. Uh, so I think that, again, you know, we're trying to follow the adage here with respect to tankers. Uh, that uh, find the premise that is incorrect and then bet against it. And that's what I, th I think this premise is incorrect. I think that uh, demand will be going up, not down over time. So here's another potential landmine that can go off. Uh, I've been listening to some folks that are a lot smarter than me that have experience in commercial real estate and office real estate. Here we have this uh, office vacancy is at a record level. So this is U.S. Metro office space vacancy. It's at 18.7%. It's the highest proportion of vacant office space in the U.S. ever. And so that means, you know, rents aren't being paid on about almost 20% of the uh, office space in the U.S. And so, you know, what does that do to the loans that 
under that, you know, are attached to that real estate. And I think this could be another landmine that goes off. We need to keep an eye on it. Um, you know, again, I don't buy the premise that, you know, with these rates where they're at, that, you know, the, the ring fenced banking pseudo banking crisis that we had a lot two weeks ago or whatever is the end of this. You know, I think that more landmines are going to go off. <clears throat> and I think this is a potential one along with corporate high yield debt, which we talked about last week. So keep an eye on this. So again, you know, one of my, one of the things that I said, and I've, I saw, I've said all, uh, on different videos and in the newsletter, you know, the, the fact that money was so cheap for so long, it encouraged a lot of dumb projects or things that weren't really economically viable because you were literally getting free money to finance them, especially with startups and then the whole SPAC craze. And so I thought this tweet was interesting. Richard Branson's rocket company, Virgin Orbit, has ceased its operation operations and fired 90% of its employees. Virgin Orbit went public via SPAC at a $3.7 billion valuation. It's current worth, it's currently worth less than $50 million. And so I remember, you know, we had, you know, Elon Musk with SpaceX, which is constantly raising money, by the way. Um, then you had uh, what, what this outfit that was going to have space tourism. And then you had, uh, I think the Amazon guy, Bezos, he has a, he has a space thing. So what we see is that all kinds of kooky, wild things got financed or were able to get money during the, you know, 10-year period where rates were zero. Now that rates are, you know, they're not at historic highs, but they're at recent highs. A lot of projects that really shouldn't have got done, a lot of malinvestment happened. And so now we need to see that clear. And we know from the past that, you know, the Fed talks a big game. But in the end, when things start to clear and debts start, you know, going belly up and companies start going belly up, if it's a sufficient level and starts to get out of control, it can cause a bunch of problems in the overall economy. As we saw some, you know, like I said, look at it like a big volcano that's getting ready to erupt and you're just getting the initial tremors. So um, I just, I, I don't really have anything to say. This isn't really actionable except to say that, you know, a lot of projects are going to go by the wayside because they should have never got done uh, in the first place. And a lot of cheap money allowed a lot of dumb stuff to happen. So I'm not sure where this is going to be at. I just point this out. We talked about, you know, how much money Ford Motor Company lost on its renewable or its uh, electric vehicle uh, thing last week. And I think one of the mucky mucks there said something to the effect that well in order to make money you got to lose money basically they're counting that like a startup you know which is what else do you expect them to say so but what i find amusing here it says that ford raises price again on electric one f-150 lightning truck and why well material prices are going up and this is kind of reemphasizes something i talked about around rebuildables the reason the rebuildables came down in price over the last 10 years or so is because commodity prices really weren't, they were going down over time up until recently. And so it wasn't because, you know, 
uh, renewable energy follows Moore's law, it just gets progressively cheaper and cheaper. If the materials that are going into the turbines and to the solar panels uh, are getting cheaper, then you can lower your prices. And it gives the view that, well, the price to produce renewable energy is going down. But now that prices are going on the upswing and we're going to be in a decade of rising commodity prices uh, with higher interest rates, by the way, um, a lot of these dumb things are going to, they're probably going to go away or find it hard to get finance because you can't make the cash flows work. You know, you, believe me, I've seen the spreadsheets and I've seen companies tweak their spreadsheets to try to get their projects over a hurdle rate. And that was before, you know, five, six, 7% interest rates or whatever they're paying now for these projects. Okay. And so now you add in the fact that, you know, copper prices, we expect copper to go higher. We expect all, everything to go higher over time. You know, all those resins and plastics that go into those turbines, those are petroleum derivatives. And so if the price of oil and natu you know, goes up over time and natural gas liquids goes up, those are the feedstocks for your whole petrochemical industry. And so let's see what's going on here at Ford. It says Ford has again raised the starting price of all of its all-electric F-150 Lightning truck after temporary halting production shipments to address a battery issue. You know, notwithstanding the fact that it seems like all these different manufacturers constantly have these battery issues. It says the cheapest of the company's electric truck trucks now costs 50, not basically 60 grand, marking the latest in a series of price increases since the full-size battery-powered pickup trucks began rolling off Detroit assembly lines in April of last year. At that time, the starting price was roughly 40 grand. By August, it had jumped to 46. In October, Ford executives raised it to 51, and in December, increased it to 56. The company has attributed the price increases to the rising cost of raw materials. And so I find it, you know, this kind of, you know, this is maybe bagging a little bit too hard on Ford, but again, we go back to the view that we have put forward many times that, you know, for everybody to go electric in the world, the, the, the minerals don't exist. And so as people try to do this transition, or these companies try to do this, they're going to find that, you know, there's not going to be the minerals at a price that they can afford to pay that the consumer will pay for a vehicle. It's funny, I was watching a and just the cost of vehicles to, to begin with. I was watching, listening to Wealthy on, they had a car guy on there talking about the price of vehicles. And I, the last brand new vehicle I bought was in 2018 and it was a Hyundai Santa Fe. And I think I paid slightly under 30 grand for it, if I remember correctly. And it was a sport version. So it's not like the top line version, but it's not a bare bones either. It's a pretty decent vehicle and it's performed well. I mean, I'm not, you know, it's not like a Mercedes or a BMW or Cadillac or anything, but it does what I needed to do. But then I was looking at some of the these pickup trucks like F-150s or Rams or whatever. I mean, the kind of truck that I want to get is like 70 or 80 grand. I mean, who's paying seven or $80,000 for a pickup truck? I mean, it's crazy. Who has the money for that? And then this car guy on Wealthion, the guy that was getting interviewed, he's an exec, he, I guess he's an, he, he, didn't want to give his name, but it, supposedly he's an executive at a, at a at a dealership group, and he's like fifteen or eighteen percent of the people that buy a vehicle now have a have a car payment over a thousand bucks a month. That's crazy. My mortgage payment isn't that. So I don't know who's going to be buying all these as the price of these vehicles goes up. Who's buying these vehicles? Who has the money to buy these vehicles? So we'll see.
So I keep talking about, and I'm not sure it's necessarily actionable, you know, with a specific stock that you can buy, but, you know, one of the things we see is this move to this multipolar world, which most people in the U.S. and in Europe and other places just aren't paying attention to. And what I believe is this challenge to the U.S. hegemon that's, you know, basically is the cause for a lot of the current troubles we see in the world. And so, um, as I, you know, again, I don't want to engage in confirmation bias, but I come across these articles and it starts, you know, you start getting this pattern recognition starts setting in, you know, you're like, okay, well, that's another brick in the wall of the argument, right? So this is from a CNBC article. It says, uh, it's not a pretty picture. Russia's support is growing in the developing world. And here's, I guess, uh, the tweet here with a few quotes. This is not a pretty picture. Support for Russia is growing in developing countries. The American television channel, CNBC, is openly saddened by the data from the report of the Economist Intelligent Unit. Quote, analysts suggest that Russia's sphere of influence has expanded over the past year as propaganda and diplomatic efforts gather momentum and Western powers fail to counter the Kremlin's narratives. Or there's another option that, you know, uh, that might want to be considered, which I've heard the other side of the argument that a lot of these people, and I've heard, I've listened to some people and leaders in Africa now speak out on this and some other folks that um, now they have an option. They don't have to be under the thumb of the United States. Now we are going to move to a multipolar world and the larger developing countries uh, in the South and East, like China, India, Russia, they're going to be Brazil. They're going to be driving this. Okay. Whether people in the U S like it or not, the, you know, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, talked about this on a podcast with Alexander Mercurius, which was basically reminded everyone, which I've said this before too, you know, 4% of the world's population, which is the United States that has 16% of the world's GDP now and is going down isn't going to be able to tell the other 96% of the world what to do anymore. Okay. They used to be, we used to be able to do that. You know, the post-World War II economic and political order allowed for the United States to have the hegemon. And a lot of policymakers in Washington, if you read like Robert Kagan's book about the encroaching jungle and Zygmunt Brzezinski's book, The Great Game, that the U.S., there's a view in Washington and in the Western Europe, that you know the hegemon of the United States has been a net benefit for the world. Well, it depends who you talk to. And so I would suggest to you that these other countries that are developing don't view it the same way that CNBC and the globalists and the people that are running the hegemon or the policymakers in DC and in Brussels look at it, okay? And what one thing that I did learn in my life and also as a negotiator when I was in the when I was in the bargaining unit, they taught us a lot about negotiations. It's very important, unless you just want to be a bully and a tyrant, like it seems like the US wants to be, you have to try to understand the, the person that you're negotiating with or the person that you have a dispute with. You have to understand what their perspective is. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it. it. Doesn't mean you have to see it's valid, but in order to get a deal, in order to get a compromise, in order to get something done then you have to understand what the other party is attempting to achieve or what their wants and needs are again you don't have to agree with them you don't have to think that they're you know 
consistent with yours, but if you don't even know what the other party is trying to negotiate or achieve, and you're then you're just going to, that's how you're going to end up in just having war. If you're just going to try to implement what you want to do to the rest of the world, which the United States could actually do 40, 50, 30, 40, 50 years ago, but that's over with now. We don't have the money where we don't have the resources and we simply don't have the will. The people in the country have no will to do, want to do that anymore. You just look at the recruiting, for example, in the military. No one wants to serve in the military. No one looks at it as virtuous to serve in the military so they can be shipped off to another war. You know, we, this last crop of baby boomer politicians that's currently in charge, once they die off or go away, I don't. Sus I, I suspect a lot of this uh, type of nonsense is going to go away because the interest level of my generation and the next generation behind me is not to be the world hegemon. And so you've got these people like, you know, in the Senate and Congress and President Biden, they're all old school cold warriors. They're running the, they're running the Zygmunt Brzezinski book from the 70s and early 80s when the Cold War was still going. That's not the reality anymore. And the problem is, is that we're falling behind. We're not paying attention to what the rest of the world's doing. And instead of trying to manage our decline or manage our place in the world and understand where it's going and accept that and try to negotiate that to our advantage and find the advantages where we have an advantage and work with others for win-win outcomes, then, you know, we're going to be moving to this other world and people are going to be attracted to it. I'm not saying a world, you know, that is multipolar that has China, Russia, and these emerging markets countries on the one side, that that's going to be a better world. I have no idea what will happen, but that's where we're heading regardless. And we don't seem to want to understand that. We just want to say stuff like, you know, well, the reason that their sphere of influence is increasing is because of propaganda and diplomatic efforts. You know, they don't want to understand that it might be, you know, a country like Kenya or Tanzania or Saudi Arabia might look at this and say, well, this is to our, you know, one, there used to be a guy, his name was Meyer Kahana, and he, <laughs> I don't want to get into his history, but he was a very, very big Israeli nationalist politician. And people used to get, <clears throat> get on him all the time for some of his views. But one thing he said that stuck in my mind is this, countries don't have allies, they have interests. You know, these countries are going to do what they think is in their country's interest which in a lot of times in these developing markets is their personal interest. And again, if you don't want to understand the, what people are trying to achieve or what their interests are or what their uh, goals are for their country or for themselves personally, then you're going to have a heck of a time. Uh, what are you going to do? Just run around and have color rev revolutions everywhere? That's not really going to work. So um, again, this is where we're heading and we're not reacting very well to this. And we're trying to you know, it's like you're in a rip current, not realizing you're in the rip current and not doing what you need to do to get out of it. You're struggling to try to fight it and you're just going to get over overwhelmed. And this is another example. You know, the BRICS is going to expand now. This is uh, a tweet. The South African foreign minister said requests to join the BRICS group were submitted by Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Algeria, Argentina, Mexico and Nigeria. You know, what's interesting is a lot of these countries, specifically Saudi Arabia, UAE, Nigeria, and Algeria, are very large petroleum, both oil and gas, exporting nations. 
And so the alignment is happening. The movement, you know, these people are going to are, are, are aligning their interests. Now, I'm, you know, I've heard the argument made by like people like Peter Zion and some of these other folks. Well, this is just all fake, blah, blah, blah. This is the current fashion because none of these countries trust each other and none of these countries like each other. And this won't last. I, I wouldn't do that. Again, countries do what's in their interest. Their interests may change. Like Saudi's interests seem to have changed over the last couple few years. Uh, again, juxtapose the reception that Mr. Biden got when he went to Saudi and what President Xi got when he went to Saudi, okay? And that was different than when President Trump went there. So it doesn't matter, you know, that you think it's stupid or you, th you know, how does, how does some hack that used to work at Stratfor know what the interests are and what these, all these governments are, are doing? How does he know? You know, I've heard this thing that, well, you know, they're put on a good face at the uh, Xi and Putin did, but they hate each other. How do you know that? Are you in the room? Do you know these men's hearts and brains? People just say stuff. And it's accepted. What What is that based on? On what exactly? You know, you can get a lot of mileage out of a relationship when you point the finger at another party and say they're that other parties, both our enemies. You know, the enemy, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so this is an older chart. I know somebody's going to say in this couple bits, you know, I don't have the most current numbers. I, I just came upon this and I have time to go back. But, you know, the BRICS have overtaken the G7 as percent of global GDP. And now as the BRICS grow, I mean, look at the G7. Who comprises the G7 countries? It's all your developed countries in Europe and the United States. And they're all have major issues. They have demographic issues. They're over indebted. They have some kind of crazy psychosis going on with the internal politics and all this other nonsense, wokeism. Um, that's just not going to work if you're competing against these other groups that don't have, that haven't saddled themselves with these things. So um, I get, and another thing people will say, well, you know, GDP is not the best, but I, I get it. There's a trend happening here, folks, in case you, it's called pattern recognition. If you want to, if you want to, if you want to be like some of these people in D.C. that aren't paying attention to what's going on and just think that, well, today is like yesterday, so tomorrow will be like today, uh, then you're going to miss what's happening as the ground shifts under you. Again, another not positive thing. This are China U.S. Treasury holdings are down 250 billion the last two years. You see that they've been in decline for a while. But they've taken a big, uh, a big drop recently. Again, you'll see people say, "Well, this isn't a big deal because where else are they going to put all these dollars?" I mean, these are just dumb remarks, okay? Um, especially when a country like China or these other countries that were holding a large amount of these things, uh, which are basically hot potatoes at this point. When you see what the United States is doing fiscally. Okay, with its debt and you know just totally irresponsible spending. I'm I'm not going to get into that and get on a soapbox, but why would you hold this? You're going to do what you got to do, um, and you know why not sell these things? You can invest in other things, hard assets, energy security, more nuclear power plants, you know, more deals with other partners, you know, whatever, what have you. And so I think that's what you're going to continue to see because 
you know, we've sent the message that if you piss us off, we, we try to freeze all your assets. We give you sanctions. We try to confiscate your assets, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, nobody wants to play that game. So here's another thing. This, uh, this is a Bloomberg article. So it was behind a paywall and I did not have the ability to break the paywall because I don't advocate you do that. But anyways, uh, you get the point, right? That says uh, Saudi Aramco in deal with Chinese partners to build refinery. I guess the refinery is going to be built in China. So does that give you a sense that they think oil demand is going away? And so in the West, in the United States, we haven't really built a brand new greenfield refinery since the 70s. There have been some, there have been expansions and things, brownfield expansions. We haven't just built a brand new refinery, you know, in the U.S. for many, for 50 years. And because oil's going away, we're not going to use oil. So what do we, why would we do that? And the rest of the world that's living in reality, again, energy security, again, I think Americans are going to wake up from their coma one day, you know, I thought a little bit of the, during the um, pandemic, when we had the, uh, or when the war first broke out and we saw oil prices go up, I was hoping people were going to wake up, but, you know, we're, if you don't want to consume the barrels here in the U.S., India, China, Africa, they'll consume the barrels, don't worry. And that's just more for them. And so, you know, I think, we're going to have higher oil prices through the rest of this decade because they're under investment and the rest of the world is going to do what it has to do to try to, it's like, I go back to what the Indian minister of energy said, I have 1.4 billion consumers. I'm going to buy oil wherever I can buy oil at a reasonable price. He didn't say anything about oil going away. So I'm bullish on gold. Uh, this chart's a little old, uh, might be a couple few weeks old, but somebody else pointed this out too. I just wanted to give you an example. You know, there's been a lot of recent, you know, shiny object. Well, gold's the place to be. Let's buy gold and silver. Blah. How do you buy gold and silver? And so if you go and do these searches on Google, you can go on Google. Um, there's tools on there too. I've shown how to do it before, but you can go. This helps you to determine what sediment is. And right now, I'm an advocate for buying gold and gold related, you know, stocks, because I think gold's going higher, but you have everybody and his brother is bullish on gold or wanting to buy gold right now. That's, this is not, you know, an indication you should be buying right now. And that, you can determine a lot of things, you know, sediment, again, we said that, you know, there's inflection points due to sediment. I mean, everybody is interested in gold. Do you really want to be buying it at that juncture? Why not wait till, you know, the inevitable shiny lure from another, you know, lure comes along and drags the tourists away and then this price will come in and then you can, you know, add to your position. So you have to be cognizant of that. And there are tools like this, like I said, you know, Google search, uh, this Google tool for searching um, terms or words or phrases and that will tell you what the search volume is. And you can understand that, um, you can see that uh, when they've had higher, something similar, again, here's pattern recognition again, we've had these other surges in the gold price and everybody and his brother gets on, you know, every shoe clerk and bleacher bum is searching on Google how to buy gold. It's usually 
an indication that the price is going to correct. So just be aware of that. It's I think arming yourself with these tools so that you understand sediment and liquidity. I think we've spent a lot of time on that talking about that because there's really nothing going on right now too much with you know what with rates where they are and what's going on in these markets with the volatility. So we've taken a lot of time in these videos to talk about these type of tools to use to see, you know, to help you be a better investor, to find when the inflection points are, to see where sediment is. I have one of the best sediment indicators is the flow of subscriptions into the actionable intelligence alert newsletter. You know, I know when we're near a top because I will be getting so many subscriptions for, you know, and then when where sediment is very negative or poor or there's a lot of fear nobody buys subscription to newsletters it's just it's it's very obvious it's kind of an you can almost time the market with it i think i might actually try to build keep track of it and then i have all the the, the data maybe try to go back and try to create a you know see where the inflection points were and see where they match with the market kind of an interesting exercise okay so that's it. It's pretty short this week. Uh, again, um, still uh, thinking that I'm long on oil and energy. I think as the year develops, we're going to see the price of oil go up. Um, notwithstanding, again, if we have a global recession, again, a lot of things hang on China. You know, eventually the riots and, and strikes in France will end and that demand will come back. And now we'll, we'll just have to keep an eye on it and see if our if our thesis of the things that we thought would drive the price higher actually happen. And so that's what we're doing. We're kind of in a holding pattern, waiting to see what happens. Again, building cash, not have not really doing too much. There's nothing really to do. Just hold what you got. Building a shopping list, building the list of things that you want to buy. And uh, I'm putting together the April issue of AIA currently over this weekend. It should be out early next week. And I'm going to introduce a, a, a stock that allows you to get exposure to the gold mining uh, industry. It's not a royalty company, but in order to get exposure to the gold mining industry and the mining industry in general, but with less risk. And uh, of course, the, the upside isn't as great. If, you know, everybody wants to find that one junior explorer and buy it at three cents and have it go to, you know, 10 bucks. Uh, that's harder that's easier said than done. But I think this particular stock, uh, based on past performance during other um, mining bull markets, uh, will show you that uh, there's there's a way to get a market beating return, exceptional returns without taking on that kind of um, all or nothing risk. So be on the lookout for that over the next couple of days. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Appreciate you. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.